Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's up, everybody? We're doing a little hunt year-round for the month of December here. I almost said the week of December. That would have been embarrassing. Well, now I just said it anyway, so it is embarrassing. All right, so we've got Jimmy, Mark, Ryan, Muck, and Hearn here. A pretty typical crew. Now, we are relatively still fresh off a hunt that we did out in the great state of Nebraska. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Mark do anything more specific than that as far as saying where-ish that we were. You've said too much already. Ugh, it's so hard. I'm fresh off of having a bite, I guess, spoiler alert, of Jim's buck that he made a fantastic stew with. And I'm having a hard time looking at the rest of it while we talk because the eating gets in the way of the mic. We need to get the, well, we, we need to get like the center mic program where everybody just like talks into the one. Oh yeah, so and you then, can quick duck away and eat some stew. Yeah. Anyway, phenomenal, Jim. My well, compliments to the chef. Thank you. I think maybe we might talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about uh, so essentially hunting in December again. Probably now that we've been in fall, the hunt year round thing. I, I would say that. It's fairly obvious, probably, the abundant opportunities that you have out there to hunt. We're just going to highlight a few specific ones, maybe some ones you didn't know about prior to listening to these podcasts. And uh, we might talk a little bit about the the hunt itself, how we got there, kind of some of the logistical stuff that you might have to go through or consider if you're going to do something similar to this. And we might even get into some of the cooking because we do have, like Mark said, this stew here. I've definitely done a lot of cooking. But anyway, why don't we dive on in? First things first, Mark, I want you to explain like what this hunt was because you're really good at navigating potentially, you know, you know not not blowing up a spot. I, no, I mean, th- this is a really cool hunt. You know, I lived in Nebraska for about seven years. And one thing that I always really enjoyed was the long and liberal muzzleloader season. So And it's just a really cool state to hunt in general. So uh, muzzleloader season there opens December 1. They give you the whole month. So, I mean, there's a really cool thing wrapped up in there as well. If you are uh, traveling back home to Nebraska for the holidays or just your whole family lives in Nebraska for the holidays and you can get together, it's a really great opportunity to get together and and have a good late season hunt. And uh, so there's that aspect to it. Uh, It's a statewide hunt. It's over-the-counter, so as far as being uh, accessible or, heck, even like a last-minute thing, you know, you grab a buddy, say, hey, let's bomb, let's bomb over there. Just, just a really, I guess for lack of a better word, easy hunt to do. Easy hunt to, uh, I guess what we should say is probably easy hunt to get yourself involved with. Yeah. We found pretty quickly, but definitely over the course of the hunt while we were out there, that it was not an easy hunt. At, at least, at least where we were. So, like you said, this is statewide. Mm-hmm. We went to a specific portion of the state. Yep. How specific can we say? I mean, we were in we were in the Sand Hills region of Nebraska, which okay. is, I mean, I, I probably talked about it before, but it's very, it's a very unique landscape. I think you'd be hard pressed to to find anything exactly like it everywhere else. It's almost like a rolling desert dotted with lakes, and there's a lot of lakes out there. You know, a mix of whitetails and mule deer with this tag. Uh, it's an any buck tag, so you can shoot a whitetail or a mule deer buck. You don't have to pick. You can use, and I guess another thing, 
I'd say extreme note, you can use optics on your muzzleloader. So you can use a magnified optic on your muzzleloader. We'll probably get into the oh muzzleloaders that we brought on this hunt. In my little teaser of what we're going to talk about, I totally should have brought up the muzzies that we used out there. Very unique. Uh, Mr. Ryan over here will definitely speak more to the specifics because he's the one who kind of put them together and, and or orchestrated getting them. But yeah, yeah. But you could use optics on your muzzleloader, so that's pretty nice. We're just using HSLR 4-16s like we'd use on a regular deer gun. Yep. Uh, antiquated 308 or a modern 6.5. <laughs> I think the HSLR is what Mark runs on his uh, shoddy. It is, yeah. Or I've, I've run it up quite a bit on that thing. On I got something yeah. a little bit different on it right now. Oh, yeah. So we we discussed going out to this this part of Nebraska. I mean, it, it was pretty incredible. The the country out there is, I mean, I have I have so many pictures on my phone that don't do anything, just anything nearly the justice that it deserves. But so many pictures on my phone of just landscape. Yep. I mean, because you would look everywhere you went. It was so it's so hilly out there. I mean, I guess when you say sand hills, it's got hills in the name. You'd expect it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Driving through Nebraska over my childhood a few times, going out west, you'd never guess that there are any hills in that state. The entire state. But you end up in this pocket. And we did drive there, and so we had to go mm-hmm. through uh, Iowa. Mm-hmm. We had to go through a large portion of Nebraska, and then all of a sudden we got out there, and holy smokes, it was like being on another planet. Yeah. If you're if you're Nebraska experience, if you have any at all, the extent of it is uh, driving on I-80, Interstate 80. You're... Is that the one the Corn Palace is on? No, that's the north one. I can't remember that one. I-80 is a little bit south of there. We took, we took the high road to get, okay. get where we were going, but... You owe it to yourself to explore that state a little bit. You do because it's it's pretty surprising. It's definitely like a very like cowboy country. Mm-hmm. You know, there are real cowboys left in Nebraska. Oh, totally, absolutely, especially around that area that we were in, and uh, it it proved to be country that was pretty tough to navigate. I mean, I remember coming back from that hunt feeling like we got our like I got my butt kicked. Yeah, and, and you're I, a fit dude, Jim. I, I try to stay fit, you know, and I work out. I, I guess I work out pretty much every day, but I don't work out like that. And I definitely try to I, I try to prescribe myself to functional fitness, you know, not mm-hmm. just kind of like curls and bench press and stuff like that, not knocking anybody who does those things. You know, everybody does fitness for their own very uh, their own specific reasons, but I try to do very functional fitness that I could, I thought I'd be able to use out there. And holy smokes, I mean, at least I was – Semi prepared, but still, it was it was tough. I'm gonna say that not not that I was looking, but we we shared a room, and uh, Jim took his shirt off, and then I felt bad about myself. <laughs> but then when we were all actually, you know, when we were packing your buck out, or even just humping those hills a little bit, um, when you said, "Man, this is tough," then that made me feel better about myself. Oh yeah, because you were you looked like a billy goat out there, Mark. Well, thank Especially you. Especially because well, no, I don't. You must have been looking at Ryan. One of the smart things, and when we get into the gear that we brought out there, that Mark had was trekking poles, and that was... Anyway, we're going to get into that. So we've discussed the country here a little bit, that we're going to the uh, area of the area of our country and what the country when we got there looked like. Getting the tag, like Mark said, was fairly simple. We just got it online, and mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of spoiled here in Wisconsin because we have this go wild thing, you know? So you can kind of essentially like digital lot, right? Mm-hmm. When you go out to Nebraska, we had, you know you had to make sure that you printed off everything and had copies with you and whatnot. So, but otherwise, extremely simple, really straightforward. Got the tag statewide. We could have gone anywhere 
essentially Nebraska, right? In fact, on our way out, we only filled one of our tags. Mm-hmm. On our way out, Mark kept saying, look for deer. <laughs> but Yeah, exactly. Trying to like, yeah, is that a public land sign? What's what's over there? Because, you know, and like I said, statewide, there's a lot of different terrain out there. So like I said, we were, we were in the Sand Hills region. There's some public land, uh, you know, in the river bottom areas that a person can go jump into. A lot of, a lot of whitetails down there. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I was, I guess, you know, that's, that was home for me for a while. So I like it. So once we got out there, as far as let's talk about, uh, lodging briefly. So we, we moteled it admittedly. Mm -hmm. We'll admit that here on the podcast. We did motel, but I mean, it's not, that's not anything strange. We were hoping originally before we got out there, there was, there was discussions of camping it. And I think that some of us were like, oh, super stoked about roughing it. Some of us. Not so much. The interesting thing about camping it, though, was that actually would have been kind of inconvenient. We wouldn't have been, it's not the kind of thing that you can just go out and just, hey, we're hunting out here. We're going to, you know, we're, we're done for the day. We're going to hang up the, I mean, what, what's the phrase? Hang up the shoes, throw in the towel, you know, pitch the tent and, and camp here. We couldn't do that. We had to, we had to uh, essentially drive into the spot that we were hunting. And we literally just talked with land in a previous podcast about different types of, Public land, I already forget. Lantani with BHA. Lantani with BHA. Back country hunters and anglers. Yep. Um, I don't remember what kind it was. We, we had probably, to drive it in park. We, and we then... should probably re-listen to that podcast to know where we were. But probably yeah, should. so yeah, it didn't you, you weren't allowed to camp on the public land that we were hunting. And of course, a lot of private land in the area as well, which you know you probably could you know potentially get permission to. To. Dude, I suddenly I'm about to myself. It's not the stew. It's last night's burrito. <laughs> Godspeed, James. Sorry, guys. We've lost Jim. I repeat, we, lo- we lost Jim. Five minutes later. All right, everybody. Sorry about that. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I was losing my train of thought there a little bit. Um, last night's fast food burrito wasn't agreeing with the deer stew. Anyway, just it's not it's not important at this point. Um Okay, back in action though. We were talking about camping out there. Right. Now, camping was something that we we'd consider, were, were we going to do it? We're not going to do it, you know. Oh man, it'd be this cool thing to add to the experience of camp, you know, just being out there in this cool country. We ended up like we said moteling it, but Mark, you were getting into the fact that there were some spots that you could camp, but they weren't exactly convenient. The spot that we were on, you couldn't camp on, and that just had to do with the fact, you know, different types of public land, different uses, different governing bodies and yeah, I mean, it was a little bit tricky. There was some stuff that you could see uh, on Onyx that appeared that you would be able to camp there, right? But I guess, you know, by definition of law. But looking at access points, it seemed a little bit tricky. You know, and we also, I mean, speaking to what we were talking about earlier about, even though we've been planning this hunt for a long time. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I just laughed because I remember that. Anyway, uh, keep going. No, I'm losing my train of thought. I just laughed because that was the point where I cut you off before. Life life gets busy. Things work gets busy. This, that, the other. It's like we've been planning this hunt for a long time. All of a sudden, it was upon us. Oh, man, yeah. Logistically, it seemed easier. Like, you know what? We'll just hotel it. And uh, it worked out really well. But And actually, when we were trying to, when we checked out those spots that we were potentially thinking about camping, I don't think we ever really sorted out if there was a way in there or not. So it kind of, you know, Pulled double duty there and actually ended up working out well. Weather weather alone was a. I'm glad we didn't camp. 
Yeah. I love winter camping, and I'm glad we didn't camp. It would have been pretty brutal. We endured some very cold temps, some pretty serious snowstorms, borderline slash blizzard. Yeah. The drive-in was incredible. Hours extra due to the the weather. It, It was incredible. Yeah. But we did we did make it, and yeah, that, that ultimately would have made. I remember the first night, even just after getting back after that hunt, we stepped into the Super Eight, and it was nice. I, I, not gonna lie, I mean, I think I was the one who was advocating most, like, dude, we gotta camp. It'll be so sweet. It'll be like the best way to improve the experience. Yeah, and I stepped in. And I was like, that would have been a brutal night. To- <laughs> <laughs> we, we made we made very much the right call on that. A bed and a little cable television never hurt anybody. Yeah. So Ryan um, loves that I call it cable television. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call you on my cellular telephone later for my bicycle. Excellent. So before we dive in on the actual hunt itself, let's talk real quick about gear. So this hunt was the the deer that we did end up getting. We did end up coming out with a uh, with a buck. It was a white tail, mm-hmm. and I'll say that. We ended up working harder for a whitetail than I ever thought somebody could work for a whitetail as far as, like, physical exertion. You know, I'm not saying that working to get a whitetail is easy because those things are crafty little sons of guns. Yep. But but physical exertion was off the charts. So we went out as far as gear-wise goes. I mentioned Mark's trekking poles earlier. Mm -hmm. We were in actually some fairly technical hunting gear. I mean, we all had big packs like you would take on a I mean mm-hmm. western hunt we had like gosh what else I mean name some of the things I'm forgetting I mean but, it, and then just, we'll get into the muzzle loaders it, themselves but. it was a hunt you know I mean and part of that you know we're talking about the weather conditions right and when you get into those later seasons like it's important to be able to stay warm and dry or you know it can get at the minimum uncomfortable and you know potentially dangerous right yeah I, with wind I'd say we were with wind chill, anyway, we were at zero, if not slightly below, on the first day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the the wind speeds that we had and the ambient temperature, mix that in with uh, blowing snow. I think we got about eight inches of snow on that first day. Easily, yeah, and Easily. it was blowing hard. Yeah. Uh, so what was I thought was really interesting is if it wasn't blowing hard and it wasn't snowing, we would have worn completely different clothing out there. We would have probably had a different style of hunting out there, but considering the weather, mm-hmm. kind of had to keep moving. It was very different. Yeah. Right? We wore rain gear on the outside. We did pretty the, the entire time that we were out there. Yeah. It's, I don't, I, I never like to, I don't want to sound snobby and say it's, it's not something you'd want to go out in your jeans and a flannel and, cause you could, I mean, you could have done it. Sure. But having some of the more, you know, technical apparel, like Ryan said, you know, soft shell jacket underneath a rain shell, that helped keep us dry mm-hmm. and, and really actually in the long run safe too because when you're moving around out there, it's easy to feel nice and warm, but if you got stuck out there or if you sit down, you're glassing for a while and you're not moving so much and generating so much heat, I mean, it would start to get chilly. And, and on that first or second day, I remember there was a time where we did end up sitting for a little bit and even with all that gear that we had on, I remember I was feeling pretty darn cold, mm-hmm. and I was glad that I wasn't also wet. Right. That would have been bad. And with all that snow out there, when you take a seat somewhere and you start melting snow around you, uh, those those things don't go together pretty well yep. at all. And so we had we had that. 
we were uh, having to, you had to go through a lot of snow. So having the proper footwear helped big time. Stuff that had, you know, grippy soles, big kind of like, I guess, chunky rubber uh, soles with, I, I don't know what the technical term Lugs. is. Yeah. Lugs. Lugs. Yeah, so you could dig in. Or else, I mean, there was a lot of slipping and sliding going oh, yeah. on. And uh, and plus, you're just trudging through, I mean, 8 to 12 inches of snow yeah. uh, at a time. So it was it was pretty exhausting. Had a, we, we actually went out fairly light. Definitely not like Dave, lightweight. No. But we went out fairly light, you know, and having to carry around a ton of weight out there, especially when you're trudging through the snow and a lot of up and down. And when we say up and down, it was like if you were going up, you were going up, yep. up. And down was like down, down. So being able to keep up with that and not have to carry around so much weight through all that snow was was nice. It, w- it was good for sure. Now, can we get into the muzzies? I think we should. Okay, good. All right. The muzzle loaders that we brought out there, we're going to have Ryan speak to primarily. They were actually different, so they weren't exactly the same muzzle loader. But Ryan, why don't you explain what we were rock- sure. working with? So we were not running a traditional Hawken, and for that matter, we weren't even running kind of modern inlines. One of the rifles was a Remington 700 Ultimate muzzleloader, which is a really neat gun. This is Remington's kind of second iteration of a high-performance muzzleloader in the past couple of decades. They had made a 700, what they called the 700 ML for a while. I've got that in 54 in my safe right now. Yeah, it was a neat gun, but there was like a couple of things that just weren't really that high-performance about it. At the time, it was pretty revolutionary, but um, the 700 UML, as they call it, is a really neat design it's actually based off a 700 receiver so like you've got to do a 4473 when you transfer it in the whole shebang Uh, it's 50 caliber it handles on up to 200 grain powder charge if you're shooting like black powder substitute like a triple seven pellet for example they use a unique priming system it's a modified 308 winchester case uh, and a pretty high performance breech plug we were shooting a 270 grain orlock mz bullet from uh, the folks over at Federal, and putting just shy of 2,200 feet per second on the board with a fairly modest charge. The gun shoots as good as any centerfire rifle I own. I mean, three-shot groups, under a half minute. Uh, really, really exceptional rifle. Uh, we had dope on it to 350 yards. It would have been a comfortable shot at that. So it, it is not it is not the kind of the slow poke quintessential muzzle loader that I think a lot of people uh, may think of when they think of a, a muzzle loader hunt as being very limiting. This is a very, it was a pretty high performance rig. Um, I'm very impressed with it. That was my first time really getting to know that, that system. And, and I was, I was floored for what that is. That's uh, a pretty cool product. Um, so that's pretty much a factory gun. Yep. Absolutely. Bought it. You, you can buy it as is just, just like that. Other yeah. one, on the other hand, not a, not a factory Not gun. a factory gun. Uh, really, really, really neat one. This one I got the itch for a couple of years ago. I, actually, talking with Mark specifically about this hunt. Yep. Around We've been planning this for a couple of years. years. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Try to do as much Western hunting as I can, and sometimes you you don't get to get within 100 yards of the critter. And, and um, this hunt and then a couple of, of pretty neat hunts in, in New Mexico, too, had my interest peaked on a muzzle loader that was, you know, I mean, still a muzzle loader. You got to load it from the end or from the front, mm-hmm. uh, but very high performance. So I, I had built for me by uh, Arrow, Arrowhead Precision or Arrowhead Sporting Goods, excuse me, a gentleman named Luke Horak. He's out of 
Arizona, he built a smokeless muzzleloader in 45 caliber on a Savage Model 10 receiver. And to put put this all in perspective, uh, so started life as a, a Savage 10 308. You pull the barrel off. Luke makes a, a very unique bolt face for the Savages because they have remo- removable bolt faces. Uh, uses a 209 primer for ignition. Uh, you can shoot black powder substitute. You can shoot uh, like Blackhorn 209, for example. You can shoot some pellets. And you can also shoot smokeless powder in it, which is really the cool part. So I was shooting a, a, a pretty stout charge of H4198 under a 300-grain bullet that Luke builds. It's a very high BC bullet. It's a very slippery-looking bullet. It's a strange-looking bullet. Oh, yeah, yeah. We it, should uh, include a picture of yeah, it. Yeah, we should somehow include a picture. It, it lo- How would you, like, the shape almost looks as though you took a really, really sharp pencil yeah. and just chopped, chopped off, off the yep. tip. So yeah, if you or you were to draw like a cartoon rocket, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and uh, really high BC for caliber. It's got a BC of just over 0.3, which for a 45 caliber slug that weighs 300 grains is, is pretty smoking. Mm-hmm. Pushing it at about 2780. So by the numbers, by the numbers, it's like a 338 Lapua in many regards. Now, it certainly doesn't have the ballistic characteristics of a 338 Lapua, but it was not far off of a 65 Creedmoor as far as dope goes. Very forgiving to shoot. Uh, really, an interesting system as far as like guns I own now. Like that's it's a new favorite. It's very new, but it, it's very neat, and I like that. And uh, yeah, that so that's what we brought. I, so I guess you know we were we were prepared for a shot outside of what a lot of folks will typically assign muzzleloader ranges, like 150 yards. Um, these guns were zeroed at 150 yards. The um, the UML, like I said, we, we had dope out to 350. The smokeless version that Luke had built, uh, that we had dope out to 500. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was certainly doable. We, mm-hmm. we, we could have done either shot. So we, we came prepared. Can you explain quick how you uh, went about making that? Because you bought a Savage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was it again? Model 10? Model 10, yep. You bought a Savage Model 10 on sale in like Cabela's Bar. Yeah. Day, right? Uh, it was a... It was a holiday sale they were doing. I bought it about this time last year, yeah. I think. Uh, and it, it was a rebate deal. It was $275 out the door for the 308. And basically pulled it out of the stock, sent it down to Luke. Luke pulled the factory barrel off, popped out the factory bolt face, put his uh, Arrowhead Sporting Goods bolt face in, put a barrel that he contours, he um, threads and chambers uh, for his proprietary breech plug, uh, and whole system on there, threads it for a muzzle break, which is an absolute requirement, uh, and then sends it on back. Yeah. And um, it is it is turnkey, the coolest thing. That and, I... and not necessarily for hunting purposes, but as far as just shooting yeah. capability-wise, it's a 1,000-yard muzzleloader. It is. And he, it, there's the Midwest Muzzleloader Classic that, that Luke helps with a lot, and, and it is. It's an honest-to-goodness thousand yard muzzle loaders very bizarre to say <laughs> right uh but but check him out i mean it's really cool he he runs uh he runs a pretty cool show and and um it's a neat rig and it was not like looking at it if you're listening to this and you want to get into muzzle loading especially and I, I i go both ways like i'm i'm very much i'm compassionate about muzzle loading in general from a traditional standpoint yeah yeah. yeah just it's very interesting um my personal history with whitetail deer hunting uh, muzzle loading has been kind of the the route I've taken uh, for probably the past twelve to fifteen years, as far as like really being 
serious about it. I, I enjoy muzzleloading hunting. It's at that time of year. It's in December. I'm from Minnesota, uh, so this is when typically I would be out. Uh, generally, there's less pressure. There's a lot of snow. It's harder to hunt. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, so I've got a whole bunch of them. So this is a, a, a big stretch in the terms of muzzleloaders I go, or I would say, you know, um, it's, it's very different. But it, it's it's really cool. And turnkey, it's not as expensive as you might think. So if you're listening, you're like, well, I could never afford anything like that. If you go out and you buy like a, a TC Encore Pro Hunter, you're still looking at like an $800 muzzleloader. Um, it's very high performance rig, but it's not to the same capability. So for a few hundred dollars more, go pick up one of these Savages on, on sale or find one used. Right. We're just after the action, pull the barrel off, send it down to Luke and you're good to go. You can also do it on a Remington 700 too. He does that as well. Nice. It's really cool. So They are pretty cool. We, we yeah. weren't out there in our buckskins on this we, one. We were not. Yep. Yep. That, that would have been neat, but that's not what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, last part of the gear that I'll, I'll ask you about too, Ryan, is we've seen, if you watch, I've been watching a lot of Meteor, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been watching a lot of that show, and you'll see them out in Alaska, and they'll tape the end of their barrels, yeah. right? Now, that was something that we did, and I kind of learned, you, get, you explained to me sort of why people do that. And with muzzle loaders, it's it's especially important. Extremely, extremely. Yep. Yeah. And so we, we made sure that we went out with electrical tape. Could you go through briefly the the process of loading one of these bad boys? Sure. It, it's obviously down the muzzle muzzle loader, and then also why the the tape comes into play yeah. too. And and so I'm gonna interject here. Speaking of of loading these, and it's funny when we're talking about how modern of a of a muzzle loader these are, which, which they are extremely. I mean, they yes. are on, however modern. A muzzleloader can get on that scale. That's where these are. Yep. But loading them and reloading them. Zero things convenient about that. Zero things convenient. No. It's just as slow or fast or whatever as really just about any muzzleloader out there. So I, I can load a 54 caliber Hawken faster than I can load this gun. I believe it. I, I'd say I could load a 54 caliber Hawken twice as fast as In I some ways, there was extra steps with these. There is extra steps, yeah. Um, so the, the UML is pretty straightforward. That one is kind of powder bullet primer is really how it went down. There's nothing too extreme about loading that. It's still fairly the you know same process as you would find with a modern inline, right? And that one's unbraked. Correct. Yep. No break on that one. Um, now, the, the smokeless variant has a muzzle brake on it. It is removable. Um, you also, Luke recommends shooting a vegetable wad over the powder column if you're running a 209 ignition under the bullet. So if that makes sense, it would go powder, vegetable wad, bullet. And that vegetable wad was actually something that I've never used before. It's not or was just even like a piece aware. of broccoli that you just stick down there. It's actually <laughs> no. like a... It's like it's, a, ve- it's, it's plant fiber that's made into a mat. Yeah. And then they cut it out to the, the proper diameter. So upon discharging the rifle. So again, it uses a 209 primer for ignition, which is the same as most muzzle loaders out there, modern inlines anyways. So you cycle the bolt action as you would your normal bolt action. You remove the primer. I then close the bolt completely. And then uh, using a funnel to get through the uh, muzzle brake, because it's a long muzzle brake, it's about three inches long. Uh, I pour the powder and then I take one of the fiber wads and I put that at the end of the muzzle brake and then using that funnel as like a punch or a set, you drive the wad through the muzzle brake into the kind of the, the entrance of the muzzle with the crown, if you will, at which point you have to remove the muzzle brake by threading it off. 
and then seat the fiber wad. So this process has probably already taken about a minute. You know, if, if you're not trying to spill your powder and you're not rushing, uh, you then take a bullet, you seat it. Oh, and the bullets have to be individually sized too. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a process ahead of time and it's easy. I mean, I sized 50 up before we went, so we were good to go. Set the bullet in there again, using the, the funnel as kind of a cedar of sorts. Uh, the bullet is then kind of set and, and engages the rifling slightly. Uh, uses a three-piece collapsible ramrod. There's no provision for the ramrod on the rifle, like a regular muzzleloader. Because let's 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 just say this too. This thing looks like a PRS gun. It does. Yeah. And then then ram the bullet down as normal. Rebreak it and then tape it. And the tape was was especially critical on this hunt. And I, I tape my muzzles every time I go out. Yep. For anything, I don't. It doesn't matter if I'm hunting northern Minnesota. If I'm hunting central Wisconsin, if I'm hunting Nebraska, South Dakota, always tape your muzzle is my pro tip of the day. Well, I'll give an example of when I didn't tape my muzzle one time, which is I was on a hunt. Really, we weren't in any sort of scenario where you might get inclement weather, so I wasn't worried about rain. And this was on a uh, modern centerfire rifle, mm-hmm. the old 300 short mag. And, uh, but I was uh, belly crawling across a, uh, basically an open field trying mm-hmm. to catch up to these two antelope bucks that were fighting. And I pushed my rifle forward, and I just caught the top edge of a little, like, clump of sand or something like yep. that. And I, I got some sand into my barrel. Not a ton, but enough that I wasn't comfortable with it. Had to abort the stock and clean my rifle. Yeah. Because what can happen if you get crap down sure. in your barrel? So on this hunt specifically, it was snowing cats and dogs. Like, it was snowing hard. And so if... A couple things. If you were to get snow in there, one, it can contaminate your powder, mm-hmm. uh, moistening your powder. When you when you fire, a few things could happen. You could have uh, like a misfire. The primer would ignite. The powder is contaminated. There's no ignition. Now we've got a dead primer. We've got potentially dead powder and a stuck bullet. Uh, so this results in disassembling of the firearm, basically in the field, not a good thing. Um, so oftentimes when I'm muzzleloading, in fact, every time I'm muzzleloading, I have my toolkit to pull the gun apart in case this kind of thing happens. Number two, you might get a hang fire, which is where it starts to get dangerous. So you pull the trigger, your primer ignites, your powder delays, and then ignites. Mm -hmm. Now that delay, there's like, it's not going to be like a one, two, three second thing. It could be a half a second. It could be 10 seconds. It just depends on how things work. So if you can imagine, click, you know, your powder or your primer snaps, your powder's in this delayed state, and you, you get up from your gun, and you're thinking, well, what the heck happened? And you go to check your firearm, and then it discharges. And you're not being conscious of where your muzzle is or what it's pointed at. Something serious could happen. Um, or worse, you, you get an impaction or a construct or an, uh, an obstruction in the bore. So with the amount of snow that we had out there, like a lot of it could have ended up in the barrel in a short amount of time. You brush against a tree. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, just how many times we were slipping and falling down. Oh the yeah. Hills. And yep. if, if you were to plug your barrel with enough snow um, and it probably doesn't have to be that much. And we're using a fairly high pressure muzzle loader in, in the Remington and then a, an ultra high pressure muzzle loader in the, in the arrow arrowhead uh, sporting goods version. You could have a detonation, like you pull the trigger and you banana peel the barrel, and you could end up seriously injured or killed. Uh, so taping your muzzle helps prevent, obviously, powder contamination, but two, keeps you safe. So I recommend 
always taping the muzzle. And it's not going to screw up your shot. No, not at all. No, in fact, I've had people question that, and I've accuracy tested it myself. There was a great article, and I was a kid when I read this, about a, a guy who had done a great in-depth muzzle taping test and actually found his gun shot better. Now, whether that was coincidence or not, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to try to replicate it, but no, it's not going to affect your shot at all. And it's a, it's a, such a simple step that can, one, keep you hunting, or in the case of Mark, if Mark's stock wouldn't have been able to go through, you know, that could have been the end of your hunt. You could have, it could have just ruined you. Yeah. And that would have mm-hmm. been it. If you didn't have cleaning equipment or whatever, that could have been the end of it. Um, and of course, if your gun blows up, that is the end of it. So keep, you know, keep yourself safe, tape your muzzle. Totally. So as far as the hunt went, then we went out, we made, we, we planned out three days for ourselves, which ended up being, I remember at first when we went out there, we were like, oh man, we're just going to be hammering deer out there. We, you know, we thought as we kind of, I think, usually think just, we, you go out there, I, you know, you got to go out there and be positive. But, right, yeah, you, you want to uh, go in. I mean, you know anything can happen, but you want to yeah. have, a, I guess, at least a high level of confidence. We went out there. We were prepared to be taking three deers out, and uh, we we ended up. The first day kind of confirmed sort of some of our excitement. So we're hiking around out there in these hills. Like we said, it was, it was pretty tough country to be hiking around. It, it's got to be like a... It's, it's kind of broken, breaky. It's almost like a yeah. unique. The sand hills are unique, and this is like an interesting part of them. Yeah, got out of the truck. Definitely thought like, okay, I've got all these layers on. Really glad that I have two marine, two merino base layers. Had a puffy, then a soft shell, then a rain jacket. Had like you know merino long johns, soft shell pants, then rain pants. Super glad that I had that. Second, we went up our first hill. I was like, okay, stripping down. Yep. Got down to two merino layers and a rain jacket pretty yep. quick. We, we stayed that way for more or less Basically, the entire hunt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Came up a hill. There was a buffalo. Big one. Big one looking right at us. That was super cool, seeing a lot of buffalo out there. Yep. Tons. There was, there was a herd out there, which we'll get to a little story about those in a second, too. But kind of came around and... This was interesting, and we actually have another podcast planned on on talking about different types of pressure. Mm -hmm. Good pressure, bad pressure. Well, because on that first day when we were out there, it was snowing quite considerably. The deer were hunkered down pretty good. And and visibility was nil. Nil. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the deer hunkered down pretty good, and we kind of came up to this valley. What do you call it? What what would you call what that was? Small valley. Yeah. In the land. And it kind of had a horseshoe shape. So there was high ground that we were on, us and the buffalo. And this horseshoe shape of high ground kind of went around this lower portion in what we'll call the valley with a lot of thick stuff. And we kind of looked down there and thought, that looks like it might have a, a deer bedded up in it. Ryan ended up discussing later that these were plums, wild plums. Yeah, wild right? plum thicket. And so we went around to the opposite side of the horseshoe in part to avoid a face-off with a buffalo. Uh, in part also then to search for deer. Found a nice little sniper perch over there. And looking out, we saw a deer right off the bat. And I think we had probably wind bumped it. That's yep. what we were that's what we were kinda thinking right off the bat was, you know, our, our wind was blowing down that way into the valley kind of. And uh this deer kind of came up out of those thickets and we instantly saw that it was a buck and we were pretty much ready to shoot just about I mean if it was a buck, it was going down. We weren't going to be super picky. This no. was just more a... Uh, adventure and meat hunt. Adventure and meat hunt, exactly. Yep. Thank you. 
And so we're setting up on it and everything. And like I said, found this sniper perch, nice, uh, nice big rock. We found a lot of big rocks out there. And uh, in this case, it was me. I was, I was granted the opportunity to take the first deer out there. So I'm setting up, and you guys were giving me ranges and things like that. It, it all was going down pretty quick. It was a very dynamic scenario. That was the really cool part was like everybody just kind of sprung into action. You know, I'm calling ranges. Ryan's checking dope. Jim's following this deer as it traverses the hillside. It's in a pocket, stopping briefly, just in and out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was pretty cool. Yeah, and so we're looking at this thing, and all of a sudden we see just around the opposite end of the horseshoe comes a group of hunters. We see the blaze orange coming around. And so at this point in time, it was still it was still totally fine, very safe backdrop of the deer being on a hillside. Buffalo was watching up top on that side as well. And uh, those hunters were far enough away that we weren't really worried about it. And I actually did, I think I told you guys later on, I had an opportunity for a shot on the deer, but I just kind of froze up. I think in part because I had no idea. We had been hiking around for about like two hours, two and a half hours at that point. But I definitely it just wasn't quite ready to, I don't know, wasn't mentally ready to be taking that shot. Yeah. So I had a shot on the deer for a second. I just froze up, didn't take it. Deer kind of ran off and... The funny thing was, we all kind of watched it happen because I lost him in my scope. He was getting just, at that point, the direction he was running, he was too close for my for most of our comfort, all of our comfort to shoot at anymore because he was getting close to those other hunters at that point. He ran directly at him, and we were all kind of wondering, like, what's going to happen? Is he going to just oh, like, yeah, wait for run a show, right like, into him? Yeah. yeah, here we go. I mean, he ran so close to him. I, we, we estimated probably he was within about 20 yards of these guys. Yep. And at that point, the deer saw those guys and put on the brakes and tore off up the hill at a 90-degree angle. Craziest thing was, those dudes were none the wiser. And it wasn't like the deer was hidden. Oh no! He was he pretty was much in the open sight, and he was tearing. Yeah, and they didn't even notice. He was just uphill from him. But I mean, that snow was so deep, so soft, so they weren't going to hear him. No. Yeah, and I think it was windy. It was yeah. windy. They're just looking the other way, and yeah, he came, came, came that burning was, in yeah. right on top of him. Like you said, hit the brakes, spun, and it got was the heck out of there. But anyway, you know, so there we sat, kind of thinking, well, you know, hey, still goes. pretty early on. Yeah. That's how that goes saw one but anyway little little did we uh know there was another deer down in there that those very guys that missed the one that almost ran into him t-boned him they wound up kicking another deer up that ran essentially back to the same spot the first one was standing in and we found that that one was actually i remember looking through my furies and uh i was looking i was just kind of looking over at those hunters because i wanted to see if i could get any kind of facial reaction you know maybe maybe they did see it and i was looking for like some sense of excitement or or wonderment as to what the heck just happened but nothing all of a sudden a brown streak goes across my optics and i'm like dear 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 so we jumped down on the gun again same kind of sniper perch that we had and and in this bowl within this horseshoe comes uh, a, another deer and we found we found that it was a buck mm-hmm. so i was on the remy and uh, the Remington there, and took a shot. That one ended up hitting him, and uh, hit him in the spot. How would you guys explain what happened? I mean, we hit him right in the shoulder. I mean, the scenario was almost an instant replay of the first with a different deer. Different deer, yeah. yeah. Hit him, boom, right in the shoulder. Yeah. Curiously, in like the exact same spot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was kind of weird. <laughs> it was kind of bizarre, but yeah, I mean, I I think he kind of hit him a, a hair forward, low brisket. Breaking off, breaking his offside shoulder up up high, almost 
I mean, it, that, it was not lower leg. I mean, yeah, was, the, the angle of the shot was interesting in the first place, like how we were shooting, but how he was positioned on the hill, I think also had some interesting play on that. Because mm-hmm. it was a very steep hill that he was on mm-hmm. when he was hit. And I actually think the first shot was f- fatal or going to be fatal. Yeah. It was at about 225 yards, yeah. too. So. And it was just, it was an interesting impact, right? So I, I've, I've had that hit before in, in the past, and it's like it's in the chest cavity, and then it did catch that off shoulder. So he was more or less anchored. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not going anywhere. He made it a few steps, right? He just basically curled around the tree that yep. he was standing right next to. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, we hit him. You could tell that we hit him because he curled around that tree that was he was kind of facing and then just sort of stood there. Mm-hmm. And you, you could tell that he was kind of... Pretty much <laughs> he was in a state of yep. about to about to go down, but we ended up we ended up putting another one in him, and that one was basically instantaneous. Yes, curled up, no, oh. done. Essentially, didn't even realize what no. had happened. But that was pretty that was pretty exciting. We were all jumping around at that point, you know, in a good first morning. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so about as good as you could ask for. Yep. Went over and uh, went over and ended up getting that guy, and so. Yeah, there was there was a lot more work to be had because we had hiked in pretty far at that point. So we had a we obviously had the work of getting that deer all gutted and quartered and everything like that. So, and then the pack out, which is brutal. But uh, the quartering and and everything getting the meat off that deer was pretty funny because we decided we pretty much wanted to take it. Ryan called it coyote style, which was everything but the guts and the spine, basically. So we got ribs, we got every bit of meat that we could and loaded up our packs and then endured a just treacherously hard out. That was a doozy of a pack out. That was. I think probably the, I mean, you guys had the bulk of the load for sure. I mean, part of it was was the snow. I mean, when you're doing the uphills with weight and that snow, I mean, getting solid footing was. Very tough. Very tough slash non-existent. I fell several, several times. You guys should have had trekking poles. I did not bring my trekking yeah. poles. <laughs> yeah, me I, either. I was rocking the four-wheel drive. Yeah. Oh, it was rough. It was rough. But ended up getting that guy out of there, and then over the course of the next two days, we saw a lot of buffalo. We did see some deers. Mm-hmm. Deer. We did. I like saying deers. Catching deers. Now I feel like I'm like that dude that's like, oh, oh let me correct you. Yeah, know. catching deers, though. Catching deers. We did see some. But my, it is good, actually, now my that you brought that up. My youngest actually asked me, my three-year-old asked me that question, you catch a deer, Daddy? That's what my mom asked That's me awesome. when I come back from home. Did you catch anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, not exactly. I'm glad you brought that up, though, so people at least know that I do I do acknowledge the fact that it is deer. You know. But I, I just want to say deer. I don't want people to not know that you know. No, I appreciate that. But we saw we saw a lot and racked up a total of, Ryan, what did you end up what did you end up on your pedometer? In three in like, three days, it was about fifteen miles, I think. Yeah, and uh, which basically all of which was at some was on a hill, whether yeah. going down or up. Yep. And but the the floor count, and I can I can look back as we keep talking. The the vertical floors climbed is the impressive number there, because that's the hard part going up to put it into scale. And, and I mean, it was into the hundreds of vertical stories climbed in three days. Um, yeah, and it was under load. Uh, with very heavy rifles. I mean, the rifles are 10 pounds, and then on Jim's pack out, when I, I had a full pack, you had a full pack, 
I mean, we're probably with all gear on into the seventies of pounds into mm-hmm. the pack and rifles, and it it was it was a exercise to say the least. It was good. I mean, it, like it wasn't like I wouldn't call it extreme. No, as far but, as miles, but the one thing that was kind of deceiving is you know you, you think Nebraska, yep. and it's not like we were <laughs> on a mountain. No, right? But it was just there was just a lot of up a lot of yeah. topography. Yep. I guess. I thought one of the coolest things though over the course of the next two days. We did not get anything during those next two days. We got some opportunities, but we didn't end up coming away. What I don't even I don't even want to say we didn't end up coming coming away successful, because that would imply that it was a failure, right? And it was it was certainly not. We ended up coming away just not with meat, but on those it was days. on those days because obviously yes because obviously we had the one from the first day, but still those next two days I didn't even have a tag. We were hunting for your deer, Ryan, and uh, I didn't have a tag, and I had some of the most fun I've ever had because being out there, like getting within 100 yards and probably even a little bit closer of a buffalo, like while hunting. Oh, yeah. when we shot that, when I shot my deer that on the first day, the deer fell right underneath the buffalo that we were, I mean, it was like, does it get any more Western than that? It was, it was so Western and so American at the same time that there's just <laughs> nothing... And just seeing yeah. seeing the trails, for example, that those buffalo yep. crawl and, and climb up on. I mean, there are some trails where you were essentially putting one foot directly in front of the other, almost tight roping to avoid falling off one side of the cliff or falling into a tree onto your left side. And there were buffalo trails. Yeah. And we knew that because you'd you'd see you'd you'd step over a log and there'd be buffalo fur or hair or whatever they have sticking off that log where they yeah. had climbed over it. And it's it's incredible how like Agile and mobile, those things. Yeah, are. two thousand pound critter turns into a billy goat, yeah, really quick. And for as many of them was that were there, we we didn't really see them running around. Like when, when we did see them, they're just yeah, standing still. When when they're in the timber or when they don't want to be seen, they disappear completely. And I thought that was really interesting. I'm gearing up for a bison hunt uh, here, in hopefully the next year or two, uh, with enough points. And and it was really fun to be out there, not hunting them per se, but like watching them. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to be hunting them in a very similar train uh, in South Dakota. And it was like, man, those things can disappear when they want to. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely become invisible. We didn't know necessarily where they were going to be, when, especially when we were going through big timber, because they are wild animals. They are bison. They are big. And they don't take a lot of crap from anything. So I, I didn't really want to come around the corner and, like, run into a bison. I'd yeah. say the ones that we ran into, although not aggressive, like they weren't aggressive in any way, they also appeared to have zero cares, I'll right. put it. At the same time, looked at us and be like, I could turn you into soup. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there was something, you know, talking about, you know, Jim shooting that buck in a in a snowstorm and just the, really, the, I mean, it was windy, but it was like so quiet and the sound was so deadened at the same time and that buffalo was essentially standing straight up from where Jim's deer died there was something i mean it was ultra exciting and yet a little bit surreal at the same time and maybe some of that surrealness was the fact that it was our first morning out there and we'd been hunting for you know like you said two three hours and all of a sudden it's been just like this crazy morning and we've got a buck down and it was just it was awesome getting back to what you said you didn't have a take ryan and i've been planning this hunt for two years and then you know he had a tag and you had a tag and and i was like ah you know what If, if jim kills a deer yeah, I'll buy I'll buy a tag, you know, and then you kill that buck the first morning, and I'm like, ah, you know what? If Ryan kills a buck the second day, then I'll buy a tag. That was I went on a 
handful, you know, fair amount of hunts this fall. This one's probably at the top of my list as just pure fun. And I was trying to, I was trying to nail down the why. And, and part of the reason, I kind of didn't maybe like part of the why, but for me it was like zero pressure. Mm-hmm. Like, and uh, I found that interesting as I started to analyze it personally. I'm like, well, shouldn't every hunt, shouldn't part of why you're on any hunt is be like, to feel like not pressured. I, I don't know. It was just kind of an interesting yeah. thought that I had. But yeah, zero pressure out there for the fun of it. Wanted to help you guys spot deer, pack deer, look for deer, range deer, whatever. Not like I said, didn't didn't have a tag in my pocket the entire time. One of my funnest hunts of the season. One of the funnest hunts of my life. Getting back to roots as a human being hunting in a pack. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and that was pretty cool. Being able to help help out each other like you know on those opportunities that we did it that we did sort of come upon after my deer and we were going for ryan's deer even though we didn't end up connecting so to speak on we that. came close we did come close inches but just uh <laughs> yeah inches you can maybe go into that too ryan but like being in a position where you're looking for deer all of a sudden somebody finds one and boom everybody's laser focused on that deer that you're looking at you've got one dude on the on the uh, set of Furies, ranging it. You got another Ryan setting up on his gun, trying to get in the right position and take a good shot, trying to get his, you know, everything as far as his shooting position set up. Then you got... Pulling uh, packs, adjusting packs, stacking packs. Yeah, you got the other guy on his glass, too, trying to check to see if, a you know, if it's a buck that we saw, you know, and if the buck, is it chasing a doe? Are they moving around? Are there other deer around that... Just looking at all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Like when we saw the one that Ryan came within inches of, we saw those deer all of a sudden they came out. It was in a spot that we'd already been looking at, and they came out, and I forget who saw it, but they're like, oh, there's a coyote down there. The coyote bumped him out, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And then we were kind of watching that whole interaction occur in front of our eyes, and uh, I mean, that was just, it was wild. It was crazy seeing everything happen. It was cool. And you talk about the communication standpoint, there were multiple deer down there. And that was one thing unique about that scenario, Ryan, when we'd spotted that buck in that group that you ultimately took a poke at. Generally late season deer hunting, it seems like, you know, oftentimes a morning, evening affair, you know, you might spot a a bedded buck or this, that, the other. Their movement seemed like somewhat erratic. I mean, we were watching essentially the same group of deer and maybe that coyote had, I mean, that coyote had definitely had something to do with initial movement, but once he moved off they'd move through a gap and then all of a sudden they were coming back but all the the entire time calm browsing they were just they were or just really moving down even even rut like behavior too because well we, we did see that and yeah. maybe that was that was part of it yeah. yeah i mean it was a younger buck that was pushing some does yeah and it was it was really interesting for a december hunt considering the weather pattern and where we were i would have thought that they would have been out of that but we observed several deer the day prior i mean seriously pushing does Mm-hmm. Like big time, like that's the kind of hunt that I like because they are completely distracted. Everybody's chasing everybody. Usually, that's a, an advantage. Um, that's how I like hunting mule deer out west is when they're running hard and and they're getting silly. But yeah, it was it was it was really curious. And and backing up a little bit, I flat missed too. If anybody's wondering, like what well, um, <laughs> I was gonna let you say, yeah, no, total miss. I shoot a lot, and I'm not a I'm not a precision marksman by any stretch of the imagination but i do do a lot of shooting and it was very solid shot i I was very well benched i had dialed the dope we had good dope uh all that i pulled the trigger and i i noticed immediately that 
one thing was missing from the equation, and that was the oft-heard uh, wop. And it wasn't there. And um, I stood up, and I thought, nah, I don't think I got him. And from the video, you watch a video, it's like he reacted like he was hit. He jumped up, donkey kick, took off. But something just didn't, like I didn't hear that wop. And we were far enough away that I should have heard that wop. Yeah. And yeah. It didn't happen. And visually, like I was watching it in the binos, like I didn't hear it either, but I'm like, loud gun, it's got a break. I'm like, I know what I saw. Strange I topography mean, but, all around us. Who yeah. knows how sound is reverberating? I remember looking at that and visually being like, Visually, if that deer's not dead, mine that's in the cooler right now isn't dead. Right. Because they did the exact same hunch, donkey yep. kick, kind of, it was crazy. I, I was confident that I didn't, like, make a bad shot. Right. In that regard, because the deer ran straight down. About 10 minutes after this shot had ensued and we had finished reloading and retaping, up the hill walked the deer. And we watched him go away. And a conspicuously similar deer. <laughs> and, and while browsing and while nose to the ground, trot, 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 trot. And I'm like, well, that's definitely not a good sign, but not a bad sign at the same time because there he goes. And I know I didn't make a sour shot. And so we got down to the, the, the position in which the deer was standing. And there in the ground was a crater where that big slug had impacted. And it's like, oh, yeah. There's, Inches. Like, yep. I, I mean, you had to be there, I guess. So, folks listening, I'm trying to paint the pictures best I can. Long story short, uh, we come back. I, I go through my ballistic solution again, and I'm I'm trying to ask myself like how I missed. Not to sound arrogant or anything like that, but I just thought it was a little curious that I didn't make that shot. And uh, I went back through it, and I had a 25 degree target incline input into my ballistic calculator, and I do not know how it got there. I removed that uh, to make it more similar to what we had seen. And it corrected the approximation of miss, like the approximate amount that that I missed. Right. And so I just had a chuckle. I was like, ah, it helps to double check your work before you <laughs> before you double check before your homework. you send one. So yeah. uh, that was that. I missed a deer. Still had my best hunt of the the season. I it was it was a very significant hunt in the first so place, fun. and you know just just getting to do it like that. Uh, the way we did it, and a uh, new spot, so there's a lot of anticipation mm-hmm. on like what that's going to be like. Mm-hmm. And anytime I go into new ground, I don't have a high expectation of of success in the, in the sense that we're going to come out with packs heavy. When we came out with packs heavy the first day, and then on top of that, it was your dear gym, and it was like, man, that was cool. I was d- day one that yeah. morning, like you said, you don't want to define success by yeah. we got one, right? But I was like, this trip is already. Yep. It was. It was already. Awesome, complete, yeah. whatever, whatever you want to do. Like it was just like anything else was going to be gravy from that yep. point forward. Correct. Yeah. Bo- bonus bucks would have been forward. Uh, if, like you said, everything else would have been would have been extra credit. But um, it it was really it was a really neat hunt, and it was really neat terrain. And I think the weather really made it too. Yeah. So with all that snow that we had there, we were walking in this like ice planet Hoth slash Narnia slash mystical scene out of some Led Zeppelin song. And uh, it was just, it was just really cool to be hunting deer in deep snow. It's yep. just something about that. Yeah. Now I think one thing too that uh, I think I forgot to bring up previously. That's you know, I think the listeners have enjoyed things like this is finding the deer out there. Uh, I said deer that time, not deers. Finding the deer out there. What kind of stuff were we looking for? This one was interesting, I'll say, because other hunters 
we were using a lot to our advantage yeah, on and this it worked. one. And we were watching other hunters a lot mm-hmm. yep. on this mm-hmm. hunt. More so than I had ever thought we would have. But what kind of stuff were we looking for out there? Well, the deer were relatively easy to spot with yep. the snow. Absolutely. Yeah, they were like little brown, but you big know, brown blobs. I'd say in particular, day one, knowing that we had extremely low visibility. Yes. Um, it was more crowded out there than I had anticipated. A lot of folks hunting. A lot during of, the week? D- uh, during the week, too. Yeah. I mean, people definitely took some vacate time you know more the, than I thought, which was, which was great. It was. And, 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 and also, those guys, I mean, that's why, that's why we got yep. James Buck. Yeah, exactly. And those guys got after it, too. We, we met up with them. In a very very back corner of this place, we actually surprised them. We came, we came yeah. we came down through some some very heavy timber, and they were they got to a spot where like man, we're not going any farther. They than called this. it the point of no return. Correct. And so we had come through this like this uh, this heavy white pine stand. And, we were like we're dumb enough to keep going, right? <laughs> and actually whistled at them so as not to like alarm intrude, them right? or yeah, and they. They all jumped and they all turned around. They're like, "What are you guys doing back here?" I'm like, oh, "What are you guys doing back here?" And, and like Mark said, they're like, oh, "It's pointing no return." And so we headed down that hill, I guess. But uh, you know, looking looking at day one, considering the weather, I mean, it would have been really hard to say we could have had any other strategy other than hoping to see one come out either to feed or to flee. Right? Mm-hmm. With that terrain out there, I mean, like traditionally, if I was going to be hunting that and the weather wasn't crazy. We'd be up at a high spot, glassing in the morning, into bedding areas, and then through travel corridors, which we found when the weather did clear, there was a lot of stuff that deer were moving through out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a ton. Tra- yeah, a yeah. lot of trails. And if it wasn't for the snow, I don't think I would have appreciated that as much. Uh, because when we did get down into that deep stuff, into those plum thickets and into the river bottoms and into the pine stands, and you saw how much movement was actually occurring there, You'd have had your work cut out for you, glassing. I mean, you would have been yep. you'd have been spending a lot of time picking apart small stands, especially for whitetails and, and kind of how spooky they are, picking apart small stands of timber and, and thicket, trying to spot one either moving through or bedded up. And and we did observe uh, a group of deer. We we ended up finding a single deer on a hillside, and then through glassing, finding probably a dozen more. Mm-hmm. When you know, we, we spotted one really nice buck. Unfortunately, it was not a spot that we couldn't access him. But, yeah, we had our work cut out for us. But like like you had alluded to, Jim, using using the pressure from the other hunters and how they were moving through the area and either getting ahead of their movements or, or positioning ourselves in places in which whitetails would use as an escape corridor, or any deer, I should mm-hmm. say whitetails, but any deer would use as an escape corridor, worked. And yeah. we saw it work time and again. We saw deer move out of areas that they were into areas that the deer didn't expect us to be watching or expect us to be. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing was, you know, we were doing the same thing for other hunters too. Yeah, correct. And just when I saw that one deer, the, f- the first deer that we saw go 20 feet yeah. at full sprint from other hunters in the wide open yep. and they didn't even notice, yeah. I knew the entire time it was like we're hunting ghosts. Yeah. Because I'm sure that, that over that course of three days, I'm sure there were times where we were within, where we were within 20 feet yep. of deer, completely, yep. and didn't even know it. Yep. And we spooked them, or they stayed put, and they just we didn't we never saw them. But that's kind of wild. It was know, knowing that you're surrounded and you look down at the ground, you'd see their tracks everywhere, yeah. and you know you're just they're here. 
I'm walking right by one right now, yeah, probably, by, but by I just all can't indi- see him. By all indications, like if somebody's like, how many deer do you think we're down there? I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know. Yeah. Dozens and dozens? Yeah. So, oh, yeah. There's a lot. Lost tracks. You know, and we talk, you know, we got to watch that hunter pressure for, you know, three days in a row, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing, as is often the case at the end of a hunt, you kind of figure out what maybe you should have been doing on day one, even though, I mean, like I said, we were, we were fortunate. We didn't hear a lot of shooting down in there. I mean, no. we, were, we were fortunate to get a buck. I think we were one of the few people to get a buck. Yeah. But um, after watching that for three days, we figured out some spots like, oh, if we were here opening day or even opening week or really any time where there, there's a lot of a handful of folks down in there, we found some places where like, yep, we'd want to sit here if we and, came and, back and, and let time. that pressure work to our advantage. Yeah. One uh, one other thing I, I want to get into here, too, before we get into last calls, was uh, just a brief discussion on we could have gone after whitetails or muleys, and there was some trash talking in the truck about whitetails versus muleys. Ryan here thinks muleys are a superior deer. The king of deers. The king of deers. Whereas Mark, I don't know if, I, look, I don't want to speak for you, Mark. I don't know if you were saying that whitetail is a superior deer to mule deer or what. I think you were just trying to give whitetail its proper dues yeah and uh we then got into talking about the history behind the two types of deer and and uh we came up with some uh ryan you explained how white-tailed deer essentially are a newer deer yeah like if you were to look at the uh the evolution of that like branch of servant like like deer white-tailed deer mule deer coos deer cows deer proper pronunciation black tails uh key deer etc um, the whitetails are the newest minted version, um, whereas like mule deer are kind of the oldest so style. So we we'd kind of broken it down for those to kind of understand a little bit better. But basically, whitetails being the newer deer, relatively speaking, they kind of like grew up on the streets. No doubt. They know all the back alleys. They know kind of a lot of these modern things and and uh, and tactics that... They're street Us savvy. Humans are yep. using. They're very street savvy. Very adaptable creature. Whereas the M- mule deer, mule deer live life pinky. Up. They kind of grew up in this, you know, aristocratic kind of white Mo- collar monocle. monocle neighborhood. Yeah, and uh, they're they're very curious and they're very polite. And yeah, they're very well read. Yes. No, I I mean I think uh, Ryan and I are probably just jabbing each other, or maybe you. Maybe Ryan really does think that whitetail are the carp of deer. Maybe that's the case. For the listeners, uh, that is the case. (laughs) (laughs) And I won't stand for that. They are both extremely, extremely savvy, smart. Cool deer. Cool. Make no mistake, my heart was pounding through my chest watching Jim get on that deer and pounding through my chest when I was trying to get on mine. Mm Mm-hmm. I get excited by all of them. It's it's the style of hunting, especially out there, where I'm not standing up in a little tree just waiting for something to walk by. We're out on our feet in active pursuance of such a critter. That's you know, your style. Yeah. That's, you know what? It's, what's funny about that is maybe I'm just like, I don't know. Like, what we did, I loved immensely. Mm. Dude, I love sitting in a tree equally as much. It's not for me. I love it. That's what's great about it. Yeah. You guys can equally love what you love. I like all hunting, which is probably, my wife probably wishes I didn't like all <laughs> hunting as much as I do. Yeah. You ever think about art instead? No. On that note. All right. Let's go into last calls here. 
I know, I got mine right off the bat because I did mention at the beginning we might talk about some recipes and food and stuff. When we were uh, quartering out that deer, it's just a this is a PSA to everybody. One, having a bench made knife like we had with a serration, uh, serrated section on it, it's a huge help because if you don't have a, a bone star or something in your pack, you can use that for when you take out the ribs. Don't leave them. We got the ribs, and uh, oh my gosh, those were so good. Uh, and so I'll quick explain how you can make those ribs. You take the ribs out of the deer when it's, I mean, we, we quartered away. They're pretty much the last things that we grabbed, right? They were. So they were the last things we grabbed. I'll we, say this. I think we should credit the boys at Meteor for imparting this very, very important piece of knowledge as far as the, A, a little bit on the how to prepare them, and also, dude, I had no idea. Anyway, keep going. Sure thing. So you saw them out. Basically, uh, we you end up with these big, giant, just caveman-looking sections of ribs. Very attractive. Oh man, cut. Saw them out yeah. either with a bone saw or an improvised, or an improvised solution like we had. And uh, you pack those suckers out of there. And when you get them home, you pretty much don't do a whole lot to them. You, everybody says there's not a lot of meat on them. Trust us. When you're done with this, you will see that there is plenty. So we didn't do much to them. I think we trimmed off just any like yucky looking excess fat but i don't even know if we did much of that we, at all we barely did that barely. either and we'll, maybe we should we should talk about that a little bit too so plopped it in nesco turned the nesco on and uh so that it would be kind of like a light boil or simmer on these ribs had water in there with a salt seasoning it's like salt and black pepper and maybe a little garlic or something i don't know just a salt seasoning, courtesy of Ward Danger on Instagram. And uh, let them sit in there for like five hours. They boil down. At that point, they are so boiled down that you could take those suckers out of there when you grab in with the tongs. you got to be careful or else you rip them apart entirely. Took them out, slathered them in BBQ sauce, threw them on the grill for like five minutes and just to crisp up that, that barbecue sauce, kind of caramelize it. Took them off and ate them. We fed a bunch of people mm-hmm. full. And I'd say six people came by and all filled themselves up on rib meat. It was incredible. And the only ingredients that we used were ribs, water, salt, and barbecue sauce and grill. Like you said, phenomenal. That was it. Jim, that's a great last call. You know, and I guess I'll just dovetail into that or make or provide additional comment. It took a a, a part of the animal, particularly a deer, where at first glance, or maybe people's experience, including mine, throughout my life, not a lot to it. I've always uh, boned them out in the field as as more of a, a courtesy than anything else. Throw that meat in the grind pile. It took something. It, it took a part of the deer that's often disregarded, or sometimes, heaven forbid, discarded, and uh, turned it into probably one of my favorite meals that you can make with a deer. Best or, ribs, or just in general. Best ribs I've ever eaten. Better than pork ribs. Better than beef ribs. Just, just better. Off the charts. That's all I got for my last call. Man, that's a good last. I don't know. I can't even think of a last call. You just made me really hungry for eating more deer ribs. Um, let's see. What's my last call? Ryan. 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 <laughs> Ryan. What's my last call? Uh, Mark's last call is um, December is a great time of the year. A lot of people think 
that they're on the tail end of their big game season. And if you don't live in a southern state where waterfowling is just getting good, that perhaps you're going to hang up your bibs and overalls for the year. Not the case. Um, Nebraska is centrally located in the U.S. It was not a long drive. It wouldn't be a long drive from really anywhere. Right. Uh, great, great opportunity for adventure. Get yourself a muzzleloader. Doesn't have to be a, a high step in one, but it can be. Mm-hmm. Get yourself after some western whitetails and some some sandtails muleys, and and make a date of it. It'd be a good time, dovetailing into Mark's dovetail into Jimmy's last call. I'm a damned fool for leaving ribs in the woods for as long as I have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a fool, and uh, it was it was interesting. I'll make I'll make this this my last call. Uh, we ran into those other hunters, and we got talking to them about where we'd been, what we'd seen. And they, they said, did you guys make a kill? We said, we did yesterday. Oh, you, that was my last call that I was trying to think of, darn it. <laughs> of course it was. No, it was. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. You know how forgetful I, I am. Know. We got to talk about ribs. It can happen to anybody. This was a funny comment, yeah. And uh, and they're like, yeah, well, we made a kill just kind of down over there by that plum thicket underneath that rock by the bison. And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, we saw another. Yeah, the coyotes really got to that one. And we kind of all looked at each other, kind of snickered, like, no, no, we we worked that one over. They're like, well, no, they, they left nothing there. They're like the the ribs were gone and everything. Yeah, yeah, that's what we said. So we were and, like, "What did it look like?" And they're like, "Oh man, no ribs, no heart. I mean, nothing." And we're like, "Yeah, yeah, actually, we took them." Yeah, Jim, Jim goes, "Yeah, we took those." <laughs> and uh, and they looked like those guys are nuts. They were a little, they were <laughs> yeah. a little perplexed by that. Uh, so take take pride, like a bone take fetish, or right, take pride in not the trophy size of the animal because it is truly inconsequential. Take pride in the fact that you just secured yourself several meals. Jim has been cooking deer like every day, it seems, since we've gotten back. Heart, the tendies, what are those? Tendies. Tendies, backstrap, roast, steak, ribs. Burritos. That's about, that's like two, oh, burritos. That's like two weeks. <laughs> my last call is, uh, well, actually, I think it is kind of fitting that I said, hey, Ryan, what's my last call? Because then you start talking about it, and then you reminded me what it actually was. Um, so then my new last call is. Um, is that like four? Okay. Can't, can't. I'm, dude, I'm, step, I'm, I'm, a, I'm under my usual number. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> Carry on. Jim's, I think Jim's pretty much out of deer, and we still got some season left. I think we should go get some more. Do That's work. my last call. Do work. Bam. That was a good one. All right. On that note, folks. Little uh, information for you there for maybe your next December. It uh, keep that keep that season rolling all the way through December. That's and all we beyond. got. That's all we got, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, happy hunting and shooting out there. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks everybody for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, Maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.